Hello, friends. This is the AlphaList Podcast. I am your host, Toby. The goal of the AlphaList Podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. Welcome to the Alphalist Podcast. I am your host, Toby. And today with me is a guy I would, would like to introduce as a genius. It's Stephen Wolfram, the founder of Wolfram Alpha, founder of the Wolfram language, physicist, mathematician, and um, I think you also studied IT, right? <laughs> so you did a lot. Um, Stephen, maybe um, you can take the time and, and introduce yourself a little more. Um, like, I mean, everyone, um, well, obviously, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I've, I've spent my life kind of alternating between doing basic science and doing technology development and it's worked pretty well. It's, uh, it's kind of been about <laughs> five alternations so far. And it typically, the pattern is you, uh, develop some basic science that leads one to understand various kinds of technological directions one can go in then build the technology that provides tools, those tools that one do more basic science, and the cycle goes again. And I suppose the, the big thing that uh, uh, for sort of technological purposes, there's been kind of a, a big theme, which is this idea of computation. Actually, it's something that's gone across my science and my technology. This kind of idea of computation, what can you do with it? And kind of how much of the world can you sort of Uh, understand computationally, both in terms of the science of how you can model things about fundamental physics and space-time and so on, and things in terms of what can you do at a practical level in the kinds of products one builds and the kinds of services one creates and so on, what, what can be made computational. And so the big sort of technology uh, kind of foundation that, that I've been working on for the past 40-something years is what's now Wolfram Language. Um, and the kind of the concept there is to make a, a language that can describe as much as possible of the world computationally. It's a different objective. I mean, programming languages are kind of, it's, we've got computers, they do particular things, you know, they have, you know, memory and arrays and variables and um, loops and all this kind of thing. A programming language is all about kind of telling a computer in its terms what to do. My kind of goal has been, given the way the world is and the things we think about, you know, we think about cities and chemicals and uh, we think about kind of paths from here to there and so on. Those are not the kinds of things that a computer intrinsically deals with. But sort of the goal of a computational language is to have a way to talk about those types of things in a way that both we humans can understand and a way that computers can deal with. And that's been kind of the, the objective in building up our computational language is to have something where it's kind of a, a, a computational representation of the world. And I, I kind of view it as being like 
a modern analog of what people did in the building up of mathematical notation, maybe 500 years ago, where kind of the, um, uh, you know, before that time, if you wanted to do math, you were just using words to describe mathematical ideas. And then people invented plus signs and equal signs and things like that. And one had this kind of streamlined way to talk about math. And that was a big deal because it led to algebra and calculus. And it kind of led to our modern kind of mathematical sciences and kind of mathematical approaches to engineering and things like this. And kind of my uh, perhaps not so modest goal has been to do the same kind of thing for the much richer area of computation and to have kind of a notation for thinking about things computationally that's both kind of relevant, that's both kind of understandable by us humans and something that computers can deal with. And, and that's, you know, the, the practical version of that is, okay, so we have this, this language, Wolfram language, which, you know, lots of people use and... Uh, it's been been used both, you know, it's it's very widely used in R&D and education. It's also been used in lots of enterprise systems that typically one never knows about because, you know, deep inside some enterprise system, I'm always amused, you know, when I'm interacting with some consumer system, then I know that deep inside that system, there's a bunch of our technology, but it doesn't, you know, you don't, you don't ever see that when you're actually just, uh, you know, doing some retail transaction or something like this. But in any case, it's, it's, um, the thing that's been really interesting very recently is this language that we built as a kind of this bridge between sort of what's computationally possible and what us humans write about. We have a language which sort of expresses things about the world computationally and which is intended for humans to think in, just like mathematical notation is kind of something that that humans think in terms of. So our computational language is something where you know, it's a part of expressing yourself is to write the computational language. It's not what you would expect from like a programming language. People don't write programming language to express themselves. People might write pseudocode or something, but the programming language is just for the computer. It's it's humans write, computers read. The With Wolfram language, one of the goals is to have humans be able to read it. It's kind of a notation for representing things computationally. And one of the things that's been a big win recently is kind of, well, it's something that humans can deal with and AIs can also deal with. And so one of the things we did, uh, something with OpenAI, building this sort of Wolfram plugin for ChatGPT, where uh, what happens there is, is ChatGPT knows enough about our language that if you say something in, you know, in English or whatever, it can synthesize a piece of Wolfram language. Now, the workflow, which I think is going to be the emerging sort of workflow for quotes, programmers of the future, although the types of people who will be those programmers, I think are going to change a bit, but um, is, you know, you say roughly what you want. Actually, the, the full workflow is this. First thing is you have to imagine the thing you're trying to do, and you have to kind of formulate it computationally, which is a, a kind of an upstream thing. That's not what they teach you in computer science school, so to speak. That's the, you know, how do you think about what you're trying to do computationally? So that's sort of step step zero. Then step one is, okay, once you can describe that, you might describe it in English or in whatever natural language, you type it to an LLM, and then the LLM will synthesize a piece of computational language code. That piece of code is, if it's a fairly small fragment, it's probably going to, it has a decent chance of being correct, not perfect. And probably the LLM, even in its best case, isn't going to understand perfectly what you were talking about. You will have some, well, this is roughly what I mean. And the LLM will say, 
here's the precise piece of computational language code that I was able to generate. And then, and this is where it gets really pretty interesting, then the human can read that code. And that's a unique feature of orphan language because it's not something that's in, you know, it's not what other programming languages have, have signed up for. You can read the code. It's short enough and sort of human level enough. You can read the code. You read the code. You say, okay, that's right. And, you know, typically my experience, and this is, you know, only a few weeks we've had this technology, so to speak. So, um, and uh, it's interesting to watch people use it, actually. What, what you find is people sort of poke around, they use natural language, they try and refine what they want. The LLM produces a piece of reasonable of language code, which it can then run and see whether it actually gave the right answer. And then, but it isn't quite right. And then people say, well, I can read that, that code, and they just fix it. And then they've got a brick, which they can then use as a kind of solid computational brick that they can start then building this whole sort of tower of capability on. So it's a really pretty interesting workflow where, where you know, you're not using the LLM to make a brick that you're going to build a giant IT system out of. That's just not going to work. But what you can do is to use it to synthesize something which you as a human can then read. And you can say, yes, that was really what I meant. Now I've got this solid thing that I can then deploy and start building in this sort of big IT tower. I mean, the thing that's really very new, I mean, we've been just last few weeks, we've been uh, posting a bunch of things about integrating Wolfram Language and LLMs. And uh, uh, one of the things that's pretty interesting to watch is the LLM, you tell it what you want, it writes a piece of code, it runs the code, it sees, oh, the code didn't do the right thing. It tries to fix the code. And actually a, a workflow we're just building is it creates tests for the code. and uh, then you look at the tests, and I think it's going to be an interesting dynamic that the human will look at the tests and say, no, 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 that wasn't what I meant. That test is wrong. You know, that test wasn't what it was supposed to do in that case. Um, you know, as a, as a you know, because the human didn't think about that corner case, but the LLM said, well, what about this corner case? What do you want to do in that case? So, so I think this is kind of, you know, this looks to me to be a large part of the future, actually, of, of, uh, of, of how people will actually build systems. I mean, you know, people seem shocked right now that, oh, LLMs show that lots of programming can be automated. To me, that is hardly a shock because that's what I've been doing for the last 40 years <laughs> is automating, you know, layers and layers of programming. I mean, this is, you know, my strategy with our company has been, you know, don't hire droves of people to write low-level code, just automate things and be able to write much higher-level code. And that's been you know, it's been a big win for us, and it's been a big win for you know lots and lots of people who use our technology. I think that the um, it's always a little disappointing that I see you know companies, and it's like, do you know that that thing that you just wrote two thousand lines of Python code, you know, that could have been three lines of Wolfram language code, and you would have had it done in a couple of hours rather than a couple of months. And it's like, oh, really? Hmm. They. Uh, but it, it's it's kind of a um, you know so I think it's it's for us it's kind of it's kind of interesting to see the LLMs come in because it's kind of an alien invasion in um, in this area and I think the thing that um, is perhaps the most uh, uh, perhaps a very interesting thing in sort of the IT world is who are the great prompt engineers going to be and is that what you want and I think the the real high value thing is going to be who can conceptualize things computationally? 
which is a rather, it's more like the architect end of things, but it's even a, a step beyond that. So anyway, you asked what I do. That that's a that was a long, drawn-out um, uh, kind of... Uh, um, very good answer. Yes, a very good um, answer. Um, so but, but, I mean, okay, I should say one, a couple more things about, I mean, what <laughs> I actually do, you know, I run a company that is is still, you know, it's a, I've kept it fairly small. It's like 800 people. And um, it's, uh, uh, I do one thing that's very weird as a CEO, which is that I do a lot of sort of thinking public type work. And uh, one thing we've done for the last four or five years is we live stream many of our internal software design review meetings, um, which has been a very interesting dynamic. It's a very, um, uh, it's a it's a great way to engage with both our users and experts in various fields. And uh, actually, for our own people, it's a good way of like, well, what happened in that meeting? Well, we can just look it up on YouTube. Um, that's that's a great idea. And and as far as I remember, like I was quite young still back then in, in 2009 uh, but I, I think you also um the, the launch of your of your search engine world from alpha was also like publicly streamed right that was, yes, qu it was quite an event and i think it wasn't like some german nerdy tv show that that i was watching back then where where, where i saw well, it okay like, so so the story of that was um yes i mean you know when we launched we like to think of it as a knowledge engine rather than a search engine because it's kind of a yeah, it's computing yeah. things rather than searching what's already there. But but the um, uh, yeah, it was it was an interesting sort of challenge because we didn't know you know we're going to put this thing out in the world. It's going to have people banging on it. We needed to put it out in the world because we'd gotten it to a point where we had hypotheses about how people would use it. But in the end, its goal was to understand the natural language that people actually type. And we didn't know what that was going to be until people actually started typing it. And so we kind of had to release it. But um, we didn't know how many QPS, you know, of traffic we would get. I had a guess. And my guess turned out to be more or less right. But um, uh, the, um, and so we were thinking, like, what are we going to do? You know, and, and I, had, I had talked to a bunch of people who'd launched services which had actually fallen on their face in various ways through, you know, basically being slammed with traffic and then just falling over. And I'm like, let's let's not do it, do that. Or if that is going to happen, let's at least have it be a thing where people can kind of see behind the scenes of what's going on. And it's it was uh, so I had uh, I knew a chap um, called Justin Can who had at that time a thing called Justin.tv, which became Twitch eventually. Mm -hmm. um, but at that time, it was a very weird little sort of uh, uh, record your life type type operation. So we we used that and. Um, we, I thought it was going to be the world's most boring television because it was kind of, you know, here it was, we have this big, you know, server system. We have, you know, basically you just flip a switch and the thing's live. And, you know, what is there to say? But it turned out, needless to say, it wasn't quite as, uh, uh, it was higher drama than I expected, not least because we were, our main colo is in, uh, it was in at that time in Illinois. And it turned out, that we're, you know, we're there, we have this sort of mission control type setup. It was a good, it was a good driver actually for getting a cool sort of mission control with lots of good yeah, dashboards. Yeah, and yeah, with the countdown and everything, as far as I remember, right? Yes, 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 right. But I mean, we 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 built out those dashboards because we're like, what the heck? We're gonna do something, you know, a a, 
a made-for-TV launch. Let's at least have nice-looking dashboards. Yeah. Um, and uh, and those dashboards, we still use many of those dashboards today. They really were well built out, and that was a. They probably wouldn't have been as nicely built out if we hadn't been doing this in in public, so to speak. But but then it turned out that uh, uh, among the other dramas was that there was a tornado that was approaching the uh, that was sort of. Uh, where where we actually were, and it, it deviated in the last half hour or something. But we thought, uh, you know, we had a, a definite time when we were supposed to go live, and that was that was also the time when the tornado would have arrived. But it didn't arrive, so so that part was okay. Although we had, uh, uh, well, lots of other pieces of drama to do with uh, networks and colos and all those kinds of things. But that was a a um, yes, that was that was one of our first adventures in. Uh, and kind of live streaming things. And it was, um, uh, as I say, I, I, my basic thinking was, if something goofy was going to happen, let's at least have it be good entertainment, rather than people just saying, oh, the system went down, and, you know, we don't know what's going on. Um, Interesting. And back then, I mean, there was no Grafana, there was no Kubernetes, uh, it was operated on real hardware. And uh, I mean, so... Well, and, and right, little abstraction layers, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, we we considered, you know, running it in AWS or something like that. That wasn't realistic at the time. There was, mm. uh, you know, databases were not well enough virtualized, mm. um, and uh, so we built up our own infrastructure, which we still use today. And it's, you know, I think we're uh, at the beginning. We would see, you know, there'd be some news article about our stuff, and we'd see a spike in the traffic. After a little while, no, you know, nothing like that really had an effect on the traffic. And we mm. could just predict pretty accurately, you know, there'll be a, you know, there'll be a diurnal rhythm of of traffic. And, uh, you know, it, it meant that there wasn't really any point in us having some, uh, some sort of, uh, you know, giant outside cloud. And it's a lot cheaper to run your own, your own operation. I mean, it's, it's, um, uh, it's been interesting, actually, the, the, um, I mean, nowadays we have, uh, you know, containerization for us has been complicated and um, and not in all cases worthwhile. I mean, we've run, you know, a, lots of big companies run our stuff and they just want it to run. And whether it's containerized or not, the main thing is, does it run on our, you know, in our infrastructure? And it's it's um, uh, actually in, in it, it usually the pattern tends to be, They come in and they'll say, yeah, 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 we're going to set it up on our thing and we're going to set it up. And in the end, you know, we're setting it up and it's on, you know, it just, it lives on whatever, whatever infrastructure exists. Um, but we've been, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's interesting to see in, in, well, we're, we're about to see another bunch of deployments with, uh, with a bunch of LLMs and LLM providers. Um, and those, uh, we'll see how those deployments, uh, uh, you know, what, what technology actually ends up getting used because we now have all of these lovely you know uh containerized solutions and so on whether that's all of what actually gets deployed uh we'll we'll have to see but um uh the thing you know for us there's wolfram alpha which is all based on wolfram language underneath i mean wolfram alpha its main idea is it's taking natural language converting that through nlu to Wolfram language, to precise computational language, then doing computations. And at the beginning, I thought that was going to be the primary path for communication between LLMs and our technology stack, because we already have this NLU layer that can 
essentially catch, you know, the, the LLM produces natural language. We can then catch that natural language, turn it into precise computational language, and then compute from it. Um, that, that flow is very good because once our NLU system thinks it understands something, it has extremely high reliability at knowing what it's talking about, so to speak. So even if the LLM is producing something that's kind of nonsensey, the NLU layer will just say, oh, I don't understand that. And nothing, you know, and it won't come through to the sort of computational layer. Um, and and so that's a that's sort of a way that works. But for example, the plugin, the chat GPT Wolfram plugin um is a joint Wolfram Alpha and Wolfram Language plugin. And so the prompting there basically says, if you're gonna ask something that you have to ask in natural language, ask it to Wolfram Alpha. If you can write Wolfram language code, try and write Wolfram language code. And strangely enough, at least as of a couple of weeks ago, I haven't looked more recently, about half the time it was going to one branch and half the time it was going to the other. So it was it was kind of, uh, and you know, it was because what, what it then gets back in the chat GPT use case, what it's getting back is uh, primarily text that it's going to use to knit into whatever it's writing. Um, that's less, I mean, the, the, I think the, the bigger, well, use case for us is uh, to use an LLM to actually be part of this flow of writing code. And so, so a thing we just brought out last week is this thing we call chat notebooks, which is um, a combination of the notebook idea that we invented back in 1987 um, together with chat. And that's pretty interesting. It's really, really pretty cool. I mean, it's it's a vastly better interface for chat than the pure sort of glass teletype type interface of um, because you know, going back and being able to edit, even just being able to edit what you asked before, having these cells that have we, you know, we have chat cells, we have cells that contain chat, they have cells that contain code, cells that contain text. You organize the whole thing into this kind of uh uh, this thing, I, I don't know what it's going to look like. I mean, the the um, uh, uh, sort of the the how do you how do you do software development in a world where there is where some of what you generated came from chat, and how do you do that? You know, one of the things that's confusing there is chat is not reproducible, um, and so you know what you're really wanting to do is you're wanting to kind of excavate the nuggets. You know, you go yak yak yak, and you do a chat. And then it generates a piece of computational language code. That's the nugget that you mine. That's the thing you actually use. That's the thing you build on. Um, mm -hmm. But it will be useful, I think, to, to see what was the chat, because that's kind of the comments. That's the heavily enhanced comments. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's really cool that um, uh, which, is... Which, what, which means that you version it at a certain point, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like if you if you look at it like right now, like most people use ChatGPT. And I don't know, I, I also like, Right, Python with it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you, you just want to version it. You want to be able to manipulate the individual steps and then have like tests running against it. And, and, and then yes. you, you end up writing specs, right? It, it really reminds me of like, I'm a Rubyist. So there was behavior driven development as a, as a trend where you actually wrote uh, tests and described things that were happening in, in real language. Um, just for for uh, better readability and this kind of is now reality right like you you can yep. you can just write specs right but the but the point is that what you need the specs on their own 
aren't precise enough. You'll never get, you know, even if the LLM did its job perfectly, you won't have thought of certain cases when you just write out the spec. It's just the nature of the, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the inevitable world of computation, the world of, you know, halting problems and all this kind of thing. You, you know, computation, the, the power of computation is the reason that there are always unexpected things that happen when you do computation, which is why you end up with bugs, which is why you end up with kind of, uh, so, so, you know, I think that the way to think about it is, yes, you write the specs in natural language, but then you need a nugget that comes out that you can understand. It's not good enough. You know, if you wrote the code, then there's a decent chance you understand what's in the code. If you didn't write the code, you have to actually be able to read it. Otherwise, you can't, you know, expect. And and the thing that, again, I didn't see this coming, but it's really cool with our language because it's a language that was built to be read as well as to be written by humans. That's sort of a unique thing that uh, that makes it possible to take that it's you know it's short enough, succinct enough, kind of high level enough, and it talks about the world rather than talking just about you know w- when you talk about you know you want to talk about a city in Ruby or something, you'd be referring to some external database and you have some whole you know schema of this and that and the other, and it's not part of what is defined in the language that you know about. So the kind of the the our objective is to have all of that stuff all the sort of common knowledge of the world, so to speak, be part of this precise language that we've defined so that you can so that you can work with it. But, but yeah, I think the the thing, one of the things that's interesting right now is you're running interactive orphan language stuff and something goes wrong, generates a message. Maybe it, it has some, some internal way that it wouldn't bother to generate a message, but it's suspicious that you didn't do the right thing. What, now happens this is very new and not yet not yet out in the world is the llm it says okay llm take a look at this and it can show the llm a lot of stuff that's really boring for a human like stack, stack traces all kinds of documentation stuff and so on and the llm seems to do a remarkably good job of summarizing what's going on so in other words the code something goes wrong with the code and the human would have to say, "Oh, let me look at this, you know, stack trace. Let me run a print, fragment of the code." Print debugging. So <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, that, yeah. you don't need that. One of the features of orphan language, because it's a symbolic language, one of the things that happens is that any fragment of a program is a valid program. So you can always pick up a piece of a program, and there's always a symbolic expression. That is the that's a valid piece of input, valid piece of output. So you don't end up having to sort of write, you know, the quite the same kind of harnesses that you would have to write without without that. But but in any case, yes, it's it's the equivalent. But the, the point is that the LLM seems to do a pretty good job, given it is exposed to things sort of beyond what the human sees. Human could look at them if the human wanted to, but but the human will typically be like, oh my God, there's a thousand lines of you know of logging information here. You know, I'm not going to look at this. But the LLM looks at it and can summarize it and does a pretty good job of that. And that's you know, that's another piece of modern, modern kind of uh, modern workflow. But I think the thing that I I keep on, you know, and again, this is very new stuff. I mean, we've only really been able to see this last two or three months. And uh the tooling that we have is really only, I mean, the, we just released chat notebooks last week. Uh, we just released uh, pr- a prompt repository last week. 
Um, we have coming up uh, probably in a couple of weeks, we have, uh, uh, well, we, we released a, a kit for making uh, plugins for ChatGPT. So having ChatGPT call our cloud, uh, you know, through our instant API mechanism or from language, um, the, uh, the thing that's coming is uh, tool calling, general tool calling inside an LLM. Um, and that's, well, I mean, we don't yet know exactly what that's going to make possible, but basically what I think is going to happen is the, the LLM is trying to write code and it is making use of tools, like there's a documentation search tool, there's, a, there's debugging tools, there's test writing tools, and there's code execution tools. And the, you know, so you're telling the LLM, do this. The LLM is going off and doing some of that. And then the LLM is going and, uh, uh, you know, calling these tools and using those to enhance its experience, so to speak. Now, the one thing that, that is sort of interesting there is, you know, I've thought quite a lot about kind of the uh, AI constitution, AI governance, AI ethics, these kinds of things. And, you know, for me, those are things that have been very interesting, but a bit philosophical. And then I'm thinking, okay, we're going to have one of these tools, and this tool is has the structure of the LLM is writing code, and that code is going to execute on my computer. And at that moment, I realized, you know, all this theoretical stuff about AI ethics is well and good, but the question is, do I want an LLM to be writing something which is actually running right there yeah, on my computer? Like, like auto GPT, right? Which uh, which is uh, trending a lot. Like, do do I want this? <laughs> yes, yes, right. But I mean, yeah. it, you know, what's interesting, even even in the you know in our uh, uh, our uh, Chat GPT plugin kit, you're able to write code that runs locally on your computer. So. ChatGPT is writing, you, it's writing the code. That code through a kind of JavaScript hack in ChatGPT is calling back to your computer and it's actually running locally on your computer. And so now the question is, well, you know, what kind of sandboxing do you have? And, um, you know, many of the things you might think, oh, I'm going to sandbox it and not let it, uh, you know, read and write files. Like containerization there, yeah. Yeah. Yes, well, you can do that, but but some of the things you want it to do, say, well, can you organize my files for me? Well, you can't do that if you can't write any files, um, right? So, it, it's uh, that's a an interesting sort of moment of of uh, of of. Uh, I mean, will it's it's actually for me. I always like it when these kind of uh, sort of deep, almost philosophical kinds of questions end up sort of colliding with. The, the here and now technology practicality, and this is such a case. And um, so I'm kind of I'm kind of looking forward to trying to unravel this one, which which I think is why we're also excited um, for 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 months now about about AI, right? Why why the world is really excited because this 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 loop is finally there and it got got more accessible with with ChatGPT, etc. So people can really feel that it's that it's real, um, uh, and um, it's in a way. Uh, nothing more or less than um, a new form of, of computational interfaces, right? Um, where you replace the, the the UI that was there with um, a new form of UI, which which really understands you. And, and this is like fascinating from my perspective. Yeah, I mean, look, it's we've had GUIs. I view this as a LUI, a linguistic user interface. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it will have... Uh, it will have certain 
um, it's useful. I, I think what we'll see, you know, there's there's the question of what does it look like when sort of a sudden advance like this is made? And, you know, does this mean there's this one advance? Does this mean we're kind of we're climbing the hill rapidly from here on out? My own guess right now, and, and this changes week to week, actually, as I kind of watch these tea leaves swirling around. But my own guess is this is going to look somewhat like what happened in 2012 when kind of deep learning and uh, uh, kind of image image identification and so on became a real thing among kind of understood that deep learning was a thing. The fact is image identification today is only sort of a tweak better than it was back in 2012, 2013 mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. There was a big step then and then it kind of only tweaked better. I think the big thing right now with, with LLMs and so on is okay, there's a, a fundamental capability that none of us saw coming that's very impressive, very interesting, very scientifically interesting, actually, as well. Um, but that's the big step that's been taken. The, the things that are going to come around that, that are really the tooling and the use cases, that's going to be a large part of where the real value comes in, uh, more so than the than the core advance. I mean, I think people people sort of imagine, oh, you've got an LLM, it's going to be able to learn to do everything. Uh, that's I don't think that's the case. I mean, w- what we've got... Sort of it's interesting because the LLM is doing things that humans find easy. It finally finds quite easy too. And but there are things that humans find hard, like doing math or doing computation. I mean, nobody nobody runs a program in their head. It's just not a thing humans do um, beyond you know the very simple level. Um, and uh, uh, you know, so there's this thing that is really a creature of the last probably 300 years of, of human intellectual development and, and even more the last 50 years of human intellectual development of kind of this math slash computation layer that lets us build out lots of kinds of things that are not the kinds of things we humans can naturally do. Those are things that LLMs are not particularly suitable for. They can, like us, they can use those tools, but they're not a substitute for those tools. They're these sort of two branches. There's the computational branch and the kind of linguistic branch the, the LLM branch, it's kind of like the, the statistical AI versus the symbolic AI a little bit, at least a little bit. It's not That's not a perfect analogy because the uh, uh, symbolic AI never really got that far, never really engaged that much with kind of the, the computation side of things. But I think that's the, um, you know, the thing that had this arrived, uh, you know, before we had computers and the whole sort of idea of computation it would have been, and after all, neural nets were invented in 1943. And uh, you know what we have inside ChatGPT is not that different from what uh, McCulloch and Pitts was suggesting in 1943, just a lot bigger and with a lot more training data and with a lot of clever engineering that's been done and an understanding of the use case. Um, and I think, uh, um, so, you know, I, I, I think the, uh, uh, the thing that, um, you know, the, at this point, I think sort of this has been a, a wake-up call about there's a lot of stuff that can be automated. People generally didn't realize could be automated, although, as I say, I've been doing this for for many decades now, so it wasn't exactly so that part wasn't surprising to me. I certainly couldn't have told you that we would have the kind of linguistic success of ChatGPT in 2023 or even in any year. I I I did not see this coming. I don't think anybody else did either. Um, the uh, you know even even tracking the language models as they existed in previous years 
were not that impressive. And the yeah. thing that, that ended up happening was, I think, a piece of sort of, I think the folks at OpenAI sort of thought of it as software engineering, but it ended up being this kind of thing that finally made this sort of alignment of what the language model was doing with what humans want to see happen finally mm. made that work. Mm. I, I kind of think the, you know, if you look at the history of technology, an interesting analogy is uh, what happened with, with the invention of the telephone, which was, you know, people had known throughout the 1800s pretty much that there was a, like electricity, there were telegraphs and so on. You would be able, you know, electricity should be able to transmit a signal that would be like a human voice. But nobody ever managed to make an intelligible human voice come out. Mm. And then Alexander Graham Bell, through what one might consider to be, you know, partially hacks, I suppose, um, realized, oh, you know, it so happened that the things he did made the voice at the other end intelligible. And mm. so similarly here, you know, we've kind of known, well, you can get something that reproduces kind of the statistics of language, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But to make something that fluently seems, you know, understandable as a linguistic generator, that was a thing that it was a surprise and it wasn't obvious, you know, kind of what what would be the, almost the hacks that were needed to make that happen and when it would happen, that wasn't clear. So the actual hack was um, essentially someone building a user interface for it, right? Um, uh, a little bit I more mean, than that. GPT-3, yeah, a little bit more, but I mean, GPT-3 was around for, for ages already, um, or a while um, at least. Um, and 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 then, yeah, it was accessible. You know, I, I think that the, well, there's also, you know, reinforcement learning, human feedback stuff and so on. But I think mm -hmm. there's another more conceptual thing, which is I think that that there are these cases that come up in the history of the technology industry where it's kind of technology meets judgment. So this happened in early search engines. It's like, you know, there is the, the theory of text retrieval. And then there's the, how do you actually tweak it so that the thing is actually useful in the end? And it's a thing where a lot of technology companies struggle with this issue. I mean, they, they have, it's like, oh, let's just put more programmers onto this job. You know, they can, um, and a lot of the large tech companies, um, you know, have this kind of model, even though they have lots of great people, it's kind of like, we got to solve this with machines. And then there are quite separate kinds of companies that are really about content, you know, they're, they're publishing companies or something like this, where they're, where they're really about, you know, we've got to write the magazine or whatever. And there's this sort of rare interface between um, kind of uh, the, um, um, this, uh, uh, this kind of, you know, serious technology development with judgment. And it's actually something in the history of our company. It's something that has been, you know, we kind of backed into sort of really doing a lot of this, but it's a very, it's an interesting management problem because you kind of have to, uh, you know, it's kind of like, well, there's this technology, we can develop it, we can, you know, put it in great containers, we can, you know, have a, a great, you know, uh, sort of, you know, development, set of development practices and so on. But that's really, that's marching in the technology direction. And then it's like, Oh, but this essay, you know, how do we make it into a five-part essay? How do we make it, you know, what do we actually do when the thing wants to apologize for the fact that it made a mistake? Somebody's got to write that text, basically. And you could say, oh, we'll just get an algorithm to do it. No, you won't. You know, in the end, somebody has got to exercise human judgment to kind of 
point the thing in the direction that it should go. And that's something that in, in many sort of, it's often a management issue to see how do you merge what is sort of, it's all programmers with it's kind of something where there's human judgment. And, you know, it's like you can't run. It's not the same kind of, you know, it's not like you can do, uh, you know, run automated testing. You can't run regression tests against the human judgment type thing. It's a it's a different kind of thing where you have to have a different kind of confidence in people or your, you know, uh, and people know about sort of the idea where you have, you know, a creative crowd and a, and a kind of... Uh, a delivery crowd, but this is a little bit different. And it, it's sort of an interesting problem. And it's something I think that's, if one were to look at, you know, what was done right with ChatGPT and OpenAI, I think it's kind of one of these technology meets judgment type stories where, uh, you know, that's what made it a product that was really usable as opposed to something that was pure sort of technology all the way down kind of thing. Um, and I think, uh, you know, again, as we look at you know what will be the effects of sort of the the uh, the AI story? I, I think it's you know it's very much about uh, sort of we have now this powerful tool, uh, just as you know machine learning was already a powerful tool. But but you know I I, I watch people who say we're going to just solve this with machine learning. You, they say, and and you realize there's a very simple pattern. You know if you've got a problem where if you get it right 80% of the time, and it might be completely wrong the other 20% of the time, but if it's right 80% of the time, you're a winner. That's something you can realistically throw machine learning at. If it's something where it's got to be right 100% of the time, machine learning is probably not the right technique. You know, if you're making a search engine and you want to have something where, you know, out of the, out of the 10 links you see, you know, the, the three of them are really good, then that's a winning product if three of them are really good, even if one of them is completely stupid. Um, but if you're trying to make something where you're, you know, precisely trying to, uh, you know, launch that spacecraft or some such other thing, it's not, it's not adequate if one time out of 10, the spacecraft blows up because it did something, you know, something totally goofy happened. So, you know, this is, again, in understanding LLMs, understanding the modern round of sort of AI uh, stuff, that's that's again. It's kind of thinking through what use case is really a fit for this, uh, you know, for this type of uh, technology. And, and as I say, the the thing that uh, is just a wonderful thing for for sort of the future of, of computation and programming and so on is this fact that you can get these nuggets of kind of computational language out. That, but you have to understand them as a human. If you just if you if the thing just is saying, oh, here's a piece of code you know, put it in your system and be happy, that's probably not going to end well. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's the case where the, like mathematical notation, it's kind of this computational notation allows you to, you as a human, to say, oh yeah, that's what I meant. Let me, you know, put that as a brick, start building my tower, so to speak. Um, and I think that's, um, as I say, I think, I think one of the, one of the very important skill sets is this kind of, can I conceptualize things about the world computationally? And that's something that isn't really what is typically taught in kind of, you know, IT, computer science uh, type things. That's more, it's kind of a meta skill 
that people might get as a result of doing a bunch of projects in those areas. And I don't know exactly how to teach that. I've, I've been thinking about that question. And, and it's kind of like, you, you, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's interesting because it's a generalist field. It's not a specialist field. It's something where you want to know how to think about things computationally. The more you know, the broader your knowledge, the better off you're going to be, rather than, oh, I know this very, very specialized thing, but I know this giant tower of specialized stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, my, my feeling is that the, the value of sort of specialist knowledge it's probably going to go down a bit because there's more of it that you know you need to know it. Okay, we can automate, uh, you know, getting to that, and more to, more so that you know even if all you want to do is learn it yourself, you know, probably we don't know for sure yet. Probably the kind of AI based tutoring methodology will finally work. Something people have been claiming. You know, I remember when I was a kid, 1960s. You know, there were these books about the future which had this concept of you know a teaching machine which was going to be a computer like thing that would just teach humans stuff that didn't pan out but i think it finally has a decent chance of panning out because i think it's kind of like the llm can learn enough about each of us to know oh the thing you need to say to this person at this moment to get them to understand this next step is this you don't need to tell them you know they don't need to go to an hour long lecture they really only need to know this one point. And that's, uh, you know, and, and let me as the LLM or whatever, or the AI, tell this human that one point. But you still have to know that your teacher teaches you reality, right? Uh, or when your teacher teaches you reality and when it's maybe not true, right? Uh, which which well, we all know from LLMs. I mean... <laughs> Uh, it, it can produce great results, but sometimes it's it's also just wrong. Right, but, but this is this point about, stuff. you know, it's the same story as with machine learning, where mm. where it's like 80% good, 20% mm. garbage. Or mm. maybe those numbers move around a bit, but but that's some... Uh, and the whole point is that, for example, for the LLMs, yes, you know, calling our, you know, technology stack in the middle of producing an essay... Assuming it calls it in the right place, it's going to be able to substantially uptick that it's talking sense rather than nonsense. Um, will it always call it in the right place? We don't know yet. It's it probably, I, I don't think that's an ultimately solvable problem. I don't think it will. It will be better. It won't be perfect. But the 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 thing that gets you the thing that's really valuable is mine the nugget. There may be a lot of stuff in there that is like questionable and so on. But if you are extracting the thing that you can read, and, and you know, with respect to learning, you know, like for example, a thing we've been experimenting with is okay, you're going to teach a human to do some technical thing, and if the human that you can check whether the human did it right, that's kind of like you, you know, it's like any old assessment or test or whatever else. The human does this thing, they write down this program, they solve this chemistry problem, they do whatever they're doing, right? And you can check with computation, you can check, did they do it right? Now, the problem of the AI is get the human to be able to do it right. Mm. And and that's the thing where the AI is going to say, oh, well, you know, you might do this, you might do that. But in the end, there's a hard objective, which is get the human to do it right. And, you know, if the AI you know, I, I don't know, this is a dynamic we haven't yet seen. And this is kind of a piece of almost science that you have to do to try and understand, you know, what, what is the LLM actually going to do? 
and is it going to successfully uh, kind of, um, uh, you know, is it is it going to entertain the human by telling them a fictional story that might be okay? Is it going to tell the human something that's just complete nonsense and the human is going to go away thinking that? The good point, point and this is again about use cases, the point about essentially teaching to the test is that in the end, the thing you're trying to do is can the human solve these problems, mm. these well-defined problems? Mm. And that's something which is a very hard kind of thing that comes out and you can know whether that's working or not working. And it's not, it's like, it's not LLMs all the way down, so to speak. So as my podcast is for CTOs, the next CTO is is is, is going to be like some, some sort of mixture between like a, let's say a product person, um, um, a CEO, uh, a CTO, um, and a prompt engineer most likely, right? Um, well, I think that the important skill set I mean, and it's already a, a, you know, okay, if you have a company and it's got lots of people in it, it's sort of like a machine. It's kind of like you feed in certain prompts or whatever. Mm -hmm. You say, this is our objective. You know, here's our mission. And then the machine, you know, grinds away and tries to make that reality. You know, in my own efforts as a, you know, tech company CEO, you know, I view what I'm doing as a mixture of sort of a machine that is partly full of people. And partly, I've done the thing of building automation. That's kind of what our story of our company has been, is, you know, we build more and more and more layers of automation, so that with, you know, only 800 people, we can do software development that you might have thought would take 10,000 people to do. And uh, it's, um, and that's the, um, uh, you know, that's because we built a bunch of automation. And, and yes, it, it's a, this question of sort of how do you best manage kind of the the mixture of sort of the mission, the automation, the people. Uh, it's um, uh, you know as I say, I, I think I think the skill that is you know there's always strategy is always a key skill, and I think it's um, uh, you know mechanism. It tends to be the case in most in most efforts that people have, whether they're doing technology or business or science or whatever, that in the end, at the high end of the of, of the of whatever it is you're doing, it's the strategy that matters most, more so than the mechanism. I mean, the mechanism is is typically more, uh, you know, it, it's it's the the strategy is what leads to the outlying success usually, and uh, the the mechanism is necessary to have to make the trains run, so to speak. And if, without the mechanism, things just fail. Um, but I think, uh, uh, you know, I, I do think that the kind of um, the conceptualization of what you want to do is a key feature of uh, and, and more important because there is less to do on the mechanism side. Um, and uh, um, yeah, I, I think, um, um, you know, I do, depends on the size of company what a CTO typically does. Um, I think. The, the joke with our company tends to be we we have, uh, you know, because we're an R&D oriented company and the vast majority of our employees are R&D employees. Um, and, uh, you know, we have pretty small commercial operations um, relative to, you know, relative to R&D. And kind of the the joke with us is we we don't have a lot of the standard kinds of CXO, you know, roles that are 
that are more commercially oriented. And we have, you know, a large number of CTOs effectively, um, all of very different, different character doing different kinds of things. So it, it's a, it's sort of a broad designation, I would say. Yeah, it's hard, hard to really um, like solve or describe someone with a title, right? Um, in, in reality, um, uh, like stepping back a little, like um, a lot of people, I think, are are quite scared um, and and not so positive about what what is, what is happening with the world. Um, but um, I, I recently had uh, Richard Socher here in the podcast. I don't know if you know him, um, the the guy who built you.com, also like a, a search engine, uh, AI powered search engine. Uh, who who built Einstein? Oh, you? Yes, or, yes, yes. Okay, Salesforce. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't decode yeah, the the pronunciation of the name. It's a, it's yes. a German name, yeah. It's a German name. He, he's okay. German. <laughs> sorry for that. Um, and 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 he was 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 quite optimistic. Um, and um, like teached me that idea of really like uh, trying to to step back a little and, and zooming out a little. Um, I mean. There were so many like great inventions um, in the last years, and, and 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 if you would be able to travel back in time with your with all of your knowledge, you couldn't do much, right? You couldn't build the model yourself. You couldn't, uh, yeah. You you just can't do well, much. I wouldn't uh, declare defeat in that area. I mean, I think that the one of the things that's always very interesting is once you know something is possible, it's. Uh, I mean, two things tend to happen. One, that removes a lot of risk and uncertainty. And two, it's a lot less exciting to do it the second time. Mm. So, but, uh, you know, I think if one had known that ChatGPT was possible and one had known that five years ago, uh, I think, you know, the history would have played out a bit differently. I don't, nobody knew it was possible. So it, it, it's, um, but I think, uh, and, um, you know, I think we'll have to see how difficult it ends up really being to build these models. And I think particularly as the pure knowledge part of the model stops being part of the actual neural net piece. And, you know, as it, you know, it, it's not yet successfully done, but as one can factor out stuff where you can call our technology uh, to get the, the, the actual sort of core You can get the the detailed knowledge that way. You don't need to know the you know precise states of this, that, and the other. Those are not part of the common knowledge that you need to support the linguistic user interface, so to speak. Um, and once those are factored out, which presumably they eventually will be, I think people will say, "Oh, actually, it was pretty easy to build this kind of kind of linguistic user interface." You know, it's kind of shocking we didn't do it. You know, 15 years earlier. Yeah, um, it's just layers but, of abstractions that that are added, right? Like uh, throughout the time. Yeah, I mean, well, abstraction tends to be a different, a different story. I mean, that tends to be the story of of how do you go beyond? I mean, you know, one of the questions is, as we learn more in the world, how come we don't just need more and more education to get people to be productive, so to speak? Mm -hmm. And there are two reasons. One. Well, one, there's been this move towards specialization, which I think is not going to survive. But the other is you can abstract things. I mean, it isn't, you know, there was a time when you needed to know kind of, uh, I don't know, some some fact about, you know, the the world of animals or something. You needed to know each How individual to, to make kind of... Right? Like, you don't need to know it anymore. Like uh... Yes, but, but, but I mean, the, the point about abstraction tends to be, at first, you have to know 
you know, there are rabbits, there are foxes, there are wolves, there are this, there, that, the other. And then there's the abstraction of, oh, there are mammals, and every mammal has these characteristics. And so you don't have to learn those those more detailed pieces. And that tends to be the kind of uh, the path of abstraction where abstraction reduces the kind of educational load. It's also the case, as you say, that there are there are pieces of um of kind of the infrastructure that you don't have to learn. And, and that's, you know, just like when I was starting in, in computing, assembly language was the language you used if you wanted to do something serious. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, that gradually, you know, we saw that eventually, uh, you know, the number of people, assembly language is a specialized thing. That will be what happens to the programming languages going forward. I mean, the programming languages will be you know the C language of the is uh, of the world and so on will be you know fine things but they're in the infrastructure and the vast majority of people who interact with uh, even sort of getting computers to do things with what we might currently call programming those will be the vast majority of those interactions will not be at the level of knowing how the computer works inside just like the vast majority of people who would write even C++ code or something uh, you know, if you quiz them on what are the opcodes that this uh, uh, that exist in this particular you know CPU architecture, they wouldn't know. You know, they don't know whether the thing has a um, uh, some you know combined vector you know uh, multiply add operation or not, uh, because that was something that was at the level that they're dealing with the system. They don't need to know that, um, and that's that's. Um, uh, yeah. So, so yes, that, I think that's a, a um, I mean, the story of my efforts has been sort of to try and build these layers of automation. Well, it, really two things. One is abstraction. The other is much more knowledge about the world, which is really not, it's a slightly different story. And it's a, it's a story that, you know, it's sort of interesting because Raw computers, back when I first used them, it was just the computer. There was no operating system, mm -hmm. certainly nothing like networking. There was no interface. It was just a computer. Um, and then people got to take for granted things like operating systems, networking, GUIs, and so on. Um, I think you know the LLM layer looks to be destined to be sort of another operating system-like layer. Um, and you know the thing that I've long been interested in is is making sort of the knowledge of the world be another and kind of the knowledge of how to compute things in the world be just another thing you can take for granted when you walk up to your computer and i think mm. we're we're slowly seeing that happen and i that that's been kind of my uh one of my long-term goals is to is to kind of provide that kind of layer of uh encapsulating what we've as a species achieved in terms of creating this kind of formalized knowledge of the world, so to speak. And, and this is, you know, it's kind of the, the story of computation is a story of the formalization of things going on in the world. You know, we had logic, mm -hmm. which is at one level of formalization. We have mathematics, another kind of formalization. The general computational idea is an idea of formalizing things. Why is it worthwhile to formalize things? Well, it's worthwhile to formalize things because then you can build tall towers. You can, you know, once it's formalized and solid, you can build on top of it. If mm. it's purely, you know, he said, she said type like a, thing. Like a container, what, right? You, you you plug it in uh, and you build on top of it and you build on top of, top of yes, it. Top of yes, yes. I mean, yeah. so long as the container has the right interface. I mean, yeah. you know, you need, 
if you don't really know what this container does, it's tough to build on top of it. If it has a well-defined API, basically, and you know, you know, this is the thing that does this, and I can rely on it, then you can build on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we we essentially have a snapshot of the knowledge of the world um, that uh, I don't know stops at the at the year twenty twenty one, and and, well, and, and what, that's that's not. I mean. What we have is something that gets updated every second. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? But, that's, but like, that, like staying with you with the open open AI example, um, right? But that that's that's not really the important thing about the LLM is not its knowledge of the world. The important thing about the 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 LLM is its knowledge of language and its knowledge of common sense. Mm-hmm. The fact that it knows in detail and maybe gets completely wrong, you know, what's the market cap of company X? Right, it's not really what it is specializing in. It, it, it. One didn't know how much of that stuff was needed in order to have common sense. In other words, to know, oh, you know, Microsoft is a big company, as opposed to this corner grocery store, which is a small company. There's sort of a common sense thing which is necessary to, you know, does this corner grocery store have a CIO and a CTO and a whatever else? Well, no, that's a piece of common sense. And you have to know that that, that, that thing, you know, that, that's a kind of common sense fact. But to know precisely what the market cap of company X is or how many employees it has, it's not, that's not part of the, the corpus of common sense. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, teasing those two things apart is something we don't yet know how to do. But this kind of the the formalized knowledge of the world, that's kind of the thing that is really our technology stack story. The common sense knowledge of the world, that's the LLM story. And the, you know, the real, you know, the thing that's sort of a very interesting kind of combination of worlds is what we're seeing right now in terms of the combining of LLM technology with kind of this computational language technology and being able to see what are the use cases now of of uh, you know what are the combined use cases and and by the way it's uh, you know the set of things and what can you imagine doing in your company that is you've got a company it's uh, you're its CTO let's say and somebody says what can we now imagine doing like for example one thing that you know we've built for a bunch of large companies around the world is the ability to use Wolfram Alpha to do natural language queries about the corporate data of that company combined with public data. Okay, so you can actually walk up to it and ask, you know, how many widgets did we sell in the Midwest between Christmas and New Year? And that's a thing that it'll be able to answer and get the right answer. It'll tell you, well, assuming this for the Midwest, assuming this and that and the other. Um, it's uh, uh, And that's a thing where, you know, as a CTO, the question is, can you imagine that that's possible? And, you know, Lots of people seeing Wolfram Alpha imagined that must be possible and came and asked us, can you build that for our companies? It's been possible, but it's been difficult. That's now become considerably easier, I think, to build, to use an LLM to basically do. And it's the same story of building. You have to kind of conceptualize what you want. Then you use the LLM to do things like read your documentation, your internal company documentation. Figure out, now, here's this piece of computational language which purports to be the way that you're connecting this database to this thing that's going to process queries and so on. Okay, look at that. Is it correct? Okay, it's correct. Great. We can use that as a brick. We can build on that. 
and pretty soon we've 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 been able to do something which was sort of science fiction in the past of being able to have you know executives at some company be able to just make natural language queries to ask the you know what if type questions that normally they'd have to go to the you know IT department or the the, the um, you know corporate analysis department or whatever to to go and get that question answered and probably the, the people would come back with the with a, a different question than the one they thought they asked and it's all a big a big messy loop but so you know i think that's the that's the thing right now is is what can you imagine now doing and can you and and the thing that you know we've been uh you know how do you make your company computable so to speak how do you take what's there in your company and be able to make the things about it computational. So, for example, uh, one of the things we we decided about five years ago that we were fed up with legacy ERP systems in our company. So we decided we're going to build our own ERP system, which is an interesting you know thing because it's kind of like we have the symbolic language. It has lots of knowledge about the world. Can we build an ERP system? Answer has turned out to be yes. It's a really quite spectacular thing that we built for ourselves right now. Eventually, we'll probably spin off something to sell it to other people too. But it's very interesting because you have these kind of symbolic representations of products, and you can do things like you can run theorem-proving systems to kind of validate certain features of your kind of pricing models and so on. You can you know, have separate kind of pricing engines that run against those symbolic product descriptions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a thing where once you can imagine kind of what is computationally possible, what you you have to think through how do you make this company, how do you make this this thing computational? And, and you know, I see this in uh I'm not usually personally involved, but but we have, you know, a consulting organization that works with typically large companies trying to trying to help solve these kinds of things. And it's it's very interesting to see that once you can correctly imagine how to make something computable, you know, as I say, we, you know, we built a technology stack that is intended to make that a reality, so to speak. And the LLMs provide an additional, very important connector that, well, as a practical matter, just reduces the price a lot for being able to solve a bunch of those problems. And it's it's a, uh, you know, I think it's really it's an interesting time because what we will see, uh, you know, a lot of things people didn't imagine could be made computational will become computational. And I think that the the winning kind of CTOs and so on are, you know, can you actually do, you know, can you can you imagine it? Can you prototype it? And one of the things we've been doing a lot of recently is these tools we've been building around our language for dealing with LLMs are kind of I mean, again, they're very new. Like we released a bunch of them last week, and there are more coming in the next few weeks. But the thing that is really interesting about them is they are spectacular for prototyping things. I mean, they're probably we don't know what can be put into production because that's not yet the time to put these things into production. But in terms of you know what is the strategy around LLMs? How do you prototype something that uh, you know uses an LLM? We have you know. It's it's been really interesting to see. We've been able to build this really nice pipeline of uh, of technology for that. And again, we're you know one of the uh, we're probably in fact just last night I was I was using our, our technology to do something which is some kind of mixture of science and and proto pre technology I would say, and discovered all kinds of interesting things which 
which wouldn't have been possible were it not for the fact that we have a whole bunch of automation that um, uh, connected to LLMs and so on that I can just go explore essentially the, the uh, well, I'm, I'm right now exploring the kind of alien minds of uh, generative AIs and finding all kinds of things that I didn't expect. I, I learned a bunch of things even about the human condition, which I did not, um, uh, I was very, very surprised by. It's very interesting. What's, what's the AIs, you know, through their training have learned a lot about us humans. And it's uh, it's really interesting to see kind of in the big picture what they've learned. And that was one of the things I, you know, just was, this is a, a science thing, but, but, um, um, but 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 as a scientist, how, how do you look at inventions? I mean, um, it's like stepping back a little. Um, is it something that is is just will just continue and continue, and you you add abstraction and abstraction and abstraction and 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 and, and um, how how does that relate to the physical world? Like, well, uh, I mean the you know. Technology is mostly about taking what exists in the universe and figuring out how to apply it for human purposes. It's like you discover, okay, we find iron. Okay, what can we use iron for? We find, you know, liquid crystals. What can we use liquid crystals for? Um, it's uh, and, and much of it is about this use case thing. Can I imagine what I could do with a liquid crystal? Okay, once I can imagine it, then I find these liquid crystals, I build them into displays, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think. The um, one of the questions that certainly comes up as a theoretical question is, will there be a time when every invention that can be made has been made? And the answer is no. Um, I mean, one can see, I mean, this is a longer story about basic science, but there's this phenomenon I call computational irreducibility, which is basically the, the statement that even when you know the rules by which a system operates, you can't know what it's going to do much more efficiently than just following the rules and seeing what happens, at least usually. Sometimes you can find these sort of uh, pockets of reducibility where you can kind of jump ahead and see what's going to happen. And those pockets of reducibility, a lot of that is where there's an invention. How do you take kind of what would otherwise be this kind of um, inexorable process? And how do you how do you make something where you make that easier? It's kind of like It's sort of part of the story of economics as well. It's kind of like you could take the raw material that went into an iPhone and you could deal with it separately, or you could figure out this kind of packaging of it all into an iPhone that you can then use to kind of to, to jump ahead. And I think it, it's um, uh, the, the sort of story of, you know, will there be an end to invention is, is, is I think this, that, that the, you know, there's always more to explore in the computational universe of possible things. but. The only question is, will we humans care about it? That is, will we humans, you know, we can say, well, you can build that. And for example, I've spent a bunch of my time as a scientist exploring kind of what programs can in principle do. And you can create a simple program. It can do really complicated things. You look at it, you say, well, that kind of reminds me of something in nature or whatever else. But then you say, Can I use this for something technological? And you look at it and you say, I can't think of what I can use it for technologically. And then uh, sometimes there'll be a moment where you say, I have this technological use case. Now can I find a program that will satisfy that technological use case? Oh, yes, I can do that. 
in a sense, that's the big story of, of, of machine learning and so on, is there is this kind of pretty generic sort of program structure of neural nets. Now, can I use it for human purposes, so to speak? Can I, can I align it with what, what we, us humans are interested in? So I think the, you know, the challenge is, is really for, for us to define, you know, what's the, um, what's the use case, so to speak? How do we get, uh, um, you know, how, how do we, uh, um, uh, you know, what, what this question of will, will there sort of be an end to invention? The answer is there's an infinite amount of stuff to discover in the computational universe. The question is, which of those things will we say, oh, yeah, we really want that? You know, I, I literally was just the, the explorations I was just doing about generative AI. It, it allows one to kind of see what an alien mind thinks about. And it's like you can generate images, which are sort of the mental imagery of an alien mind. And so when we say, oh, think of an image of something, okay, you might think of an image of a tree or a car or whatever else. But you can also say, what would a sort of a, an alien mind not aligned with human, human thinking, what would it think of? And most of what it thinks of is stuff that's incomprehensible to us. And it's kind of interesting to see as you go away from what is directly comprehensible to us. Anyway, this is a, this is a long scientific story that I've just been trying to figure out right now. And uh, unfortunately, I, I have to disappear in a minute. So if we if we've got some some last uh, kind of, I, I, I have one last question. I have one last question for you, and it's a little surprise. I don't know if you know about the time machine mode in ChatGPT. It's uh, the uh, it's it's Sam Altman's best kept secret. So and he gave me access, and it it, it allows you to physically travel back in time. And um, I now have a prompt prepared uh, that. I want to travel back in time with you to the year 2009, shortly before you launched Wolfram Alpha. Um, and you have the chance to whisper something into young, young Stephen's ears. Uh, what would it be? Huh. Probably it's a uh, just go do those projects you've thought about doing. It's, um, you know, it took me, you know, we, we had this big breakthrough in fundamental physics in, in 2020. And that was a project that I had uh, really conceptualized in the early 1990s. And it took me close to 30 years to get around to actually doing that project. And I have about half a dozen projects that I've long intended to do. And uh, it's, been, it's been interesting to, uh, and Wolfram Alpha was a project that I conceptualized, though not in its final form, when I was a kid. And it took me, you know, several decades to get to the point of actually doing it. Um, and I think I just finished a project that I kind of um, originally started when I was 12 years old. Um, I just finished um, uh, well, a few months ago now. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a number of these other things where, where um, uh, uh, you know, Wolfram Alpha should have been a good example to me of, um, of, uh, um, Just go do these projects, which one thinks about doing, and but it took me another, uh, you know, another ten years or so to get around to doing this physics project, which I had long intended to do, and which, a bit like ChatGPT, kind of worked out unbelievably much better than I expected. Um, and uh, it's it's kind of um, uh, so you know one of the things is you know it's worth trying to um, trying to do these projects and. Um, Uh, I think that's probably the um, um, uh, 
uh, you know, and 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 as one gets older, it's kind of like the 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 clock is ticking on on do you get to do these projects or not, and so it's it's um um I think uh, um that's probably the uh, um you know it's funny because I've done enough technology and enough sort of running companies and things like that that it's I don't um. You know, there's always some uncertainty in what's going to happen, but there's a, a certain degree of yeah, it's going to work out more or less this way. And the only thing that um, um, that ends up being the big determiner is: do you do the thing or do you not do the thing? And so I, I suppose that would be my um, uh, my advice for myself: is um, uh, you know, it's such a complicated thing because a lot of these projects, like Wolf Alpha, for example. It could probably have been done five to ten years before it was. ChatGPT could probably have been done five to ten years before it was. Uh, my physics project could probably have been done fifteen years before it was, maybe twenty. Um, but uh, uh, you know, there's a certain there needs to be a certain ambient level of tooling in the world before these projects become possible. And there are mm-hmm. projects like I've been long interested in projects about molecular scale computing and so on which I think finally in the next year or two, the ambient technology may have reached the point where I can really do something, mm. but I would have otherwise, you know, if I'd been trying to do it in the 1990s, I would have just been spinning wheels for a, for a lot of the time. Well, I, I would say like the, one of the key issues is also that the day only has 24 hours, right? And you get a lot of stuff done. <laughs> you you can't do all of it. So Indeed, uh, right. One has to pick. <laughs> and um, and I need to go off and do something completely different. But it's yes. been very nice to chat. Yeah, and, it was very nice uh, talking to you, Stephen. Um, uh, like a pleasure, really. Um, thanks a lot and hope to see you soon again. Um, Sounds good. Yeah, thanks. Interesting thanks. discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Arcelist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. Alphalist is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or as we say in Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.